The first day was like really overwhelming. Excitement. Can't remember. <laughs> it was amazing. I loved that. A new life was waiting for me, basically. Mostly frantic. Anxiety inducing. It was torturous. Oh, it was a mess. Like it was, it was such a disaster. I haven't even started paying off my student loans. Don't know if you're going to be able to eat next semester. You're at the mercy of other people. Sorry, I'm just so jaded and cynical. Well, one day you think you can conquer the world and the other days you're not worth it. This is Just As It Sounds, featuring academics telling their stories just as they sound. Hello everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Just As It Sounds. Today we have Diane Leal. She is a PhD student in higher education and Chicano Latino studies at Michigan State University. Today we continue to discuss neoliberal university. Welcome Diane. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so while preparing for this episode, um, we are trying to make a little research on um, the effects of neoliberalism on graduate students. And we came across one of your articles that is called um, The Colonizing Condition of Neoliberalism in Higher Education. And we were like immediately intrigued. Mm -hmm. So could you please walk us through what you mean by the colonizing condition of neoliberalism and what that it means to have that in higher education? Absolutely. I think um, before I, I elaborate on the colonizing condition of higher education, I think it's important for me to talk about what I mean by neoliberalism and what I mean by colonialization. And I think understanding these terms will enable us to then understand what I mean by the colonizing condition. Um, so neoliberalism is an economic and social philosophy that is rooted in market-like behaviors and beliefs such as self-regulation, um, efficiency, individualism, and free trade. So these market-driven behaviors and beliefs can then lead to practices and policies that privilege and protect competition and the area and the idea of private goods. Mm -hmm. So some examples of these practices and policies can be like defunding institutions that provide public goods, such as welfare and healthcare, in an effort to save money, um, raising tuition and, and increasing student loans, uh, turning to private businesses for public domain, such as charter schools, um, tutoring and professional development. And the pursuit of this revenue idea or the pursuit of wanting to generate a profit through neoliberal practices and policies ultimately reduces the student to consumers and the faculty and staff into technicians and supervisors. And they serve sort of like as management positions, like if they were in a business. And when we think about neoliberalism and then we think about colonialization, they're very much related. So colonialization in its simplest form is the process of establishing control over others through the use of force, accusation, um, or domination. We often think about colonialization as um, Europeans colonizing the native lands and homes of Native American in America. But in the way I'm using colonialization here is the establishing control over others through domination. And this colonizing process allows for people to be exploited and that their labor to be exploited as well. 
and overall it undermines the, the their ways of knowing and their ways of being and doing so some examples of colonialization include the defunding or the banning of critical academic programs like Mexican-American studies in Arizona um, and or the establishment of standardized testing, um, accountability, and evidence-based research. All of these, when taking to, taken together, they signal this dominant way of knowing and doing in, in education and in higher education as well. And this way of knowing and doing, and doing there's an assumption that it can be measured and quantified. And often it is measured and quantified to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, we have neoliberalism, which is driven by market-like behaviors and, and privileges um, and protects competition and, and private goods. And on the other hand, we have, um, we have colonialization. And that one, it's the process of establishing control over others through domination. And so far, I've only described these two terms, but I want to bring them together at this point. So this invasion of market-like policies and practices in higher education has taken control of others and their ways of understanding the world and their interactions with others and how they behave and do research and how even how they teach in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Because market-like ideologies have become the norm in higher education, they are seen as something that we strive for. So a perfect example of this is um, college and university rankings, which were actually made available, I think this week. Mm -hmm. And the problem with college and university rankings is that they are often evaluated by how much research is, is, uh, is uh, published, um, how much money professors bring in, um, prestige and reputation of the university and not so much on the quality of learning and education that students are receiving, but it's become so normal. Um, university rankings are something that people strive for, that universities strive for, and something to be proud that it's not really questioned as a neoliberal symptom. Mm -hmm. um, so those that don't conform with the neoliberal ideologies and practices and policies, then they are pushed to the side they become the other. Mm -hmm. And their research by, by default becomes silenced or ghosted, or it's not published in academic journals because it's not considered knowledge that is valued, um, mm -hmm. or it's not considered knowledge that generates profit. Um, so thereby, in doing that, it colonizes um, diverse ways of knowing, being, and doing, while standardizing prominent Eurocentric and or revenue generating ways of understanding the world. You just mentioned like the knowledge that produces profit, right? right. And so like today, what is the knowledge that produces uh, the benefit and what kind of like the knowledge today uh, is valued, is appreciated? Uh, can you just like no, give some examples about that? So, an example of that would be <clears throat> the STEM field. Mm -hmm. Usually when we look at um, grant opportunities, it's usually, and I quote this, it's the heart sciences that get big lumps of money to do research. 
-hmm. And so that kind of knowledge is prioritized. That kind of knowledge is valued. While knowledge that is maybe produced in, for example, Chicano Latino programs um, where I'm a student may not be considered as valuable or may not be considered as knowledge that will generate revenue at the end. Mm -hmm. So when we when when we ask that question about like what knowledge is being valued right now, it's it's a one good way to figure that out is to look at well, what kind of grants are available for faculty? How much uh, is that opportunity? Uh, like how much are the grants for them? How often do these opportunities uh, show up and for whom? Mm -hmm. And that's when we kind of get the idea of what knowledge is valued and what knowledge is sort of dominant. Another way to find out is what kind of research is being published. Um, a lot of journals serve as gatekeepers just as they serve as amazing platforms to share knowledge, they're also gatekeepers where the editorial board gets to determine what, what research gets, um, gets reviewed or gets desk projected. Mm -hmm. So looking at what kind of grant opportunities are available and looking at what kind of knowledge is being published are two great ways to get a broad idea of what society is valuing as knowledge right now mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, in which way this, you know, neoliberal market profit driven university um, shaped the experience of uh, being a student and specifically graduate student? And when I say like graduate students, I'm also referring to the multiple roles that we are taking in university as teachers, as teaching or research assistants, but also as researchers. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I, I didn't mention this, but I should mention um, that sometimes neoliberalism, the practices and the policies reduced human subjects into objects. And as optics, we are expected to serve the institution in an effort to generate profit. Mm -hmm. So a perfect example is we may be um, graduate research assistants and we're saving the institution a lot of money by helping professors or by helping administrators to research. The same for teaching assistants, mm -hmm. right? So following this logic, as human subjects are viewed as optics, the neoliberal university can shape the experience of students in many ways. And I'll provide three broad examples. So three ways that, um, that, that the neoliberal university can shape it, the experience of a student is through discipline and regulation, um, through censorship, Mm -hmm. and through disposable intellectuals. And I'll talk about each of those in more detail. Um, but specifically for discipline and regulation, under a neoliberal university, the focus is on regulating behavior rather than removing structural barriers that marginalize individuals. So a recent example of this is, comes from the University of Michigan where the president recently issued a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction for members of the graduate employees organization. And these students were, they began a strike. And so I should say that these students are made up of research assistants, teaching assistants, and they began a strike against the university because they were planning to open 
to reopen for the fall, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And they are pushing for safety measures. They are pushing for um, a just community. But rather than the university address the, the concerns of the students, they turn to the court system mm-hmm. to regulate their behavior. Mm-hmm. And this, so, so they prioritize revenue because if they have classes in person that means that they can have students on campus and they that means that students can they have to play room and board they have to pay um other expenses so they would lose out and not having to reopen Mm -hmm. so in this case the university prioritized um, money over the concerns the the real concerns of graduate students um, so that, that is one way that the university, the neoliberal university, can shape the experiences of a student. The other way is through censorship. And in the corporate culture of higher education, um, it has led to the intellectual censorship of students' work and also faculty, but I want to focus on students um, for the purposes of this question. And what I mean by that is that those who do not conform with the market ideologies or with knowledge that would generate revenue, oftentimes that research is silenced and, and or ghosted. And um, I borrow a lot from the work of Dixa Ramirez. She has a book called Colonial Fan- Phantoms. And she talks about using the use of ghosting. And I've sort of adopted that word to describe how neoli- neoliberalism through its profit-driven practices. It has the power to define what constitutes as legitimate knowledge in academia and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, students' work is often censored or they're constrained as to what kind of research they can do. Um, And then finally, a third example of how the neoliberal academy can shape a student experience is by making them disposable intellectuals. Um, and this is particularly evident in the first example that I gave, where the, the university is not, con- not as concerned with the health and safety of students. So for this, um, for in disposable intellectuals, um, graduate students and those interested in tenure track positions experience what higher education refers to as publish or perish. Mm-hmm. And because, publish, uh, because publishing is frequently considered important, for career advancement, many doctoral students um, and faculty that are in that are in tenure track feel the pressure of working long hours, um, and they experience this quick burnout. There is actually a study, um, a recent study by the Harvard research team, that documents the experience of doctoral students, and they it, they found that doctoral students are more likely to feel lonely than the average retired American and more likely to struggle with mental health issues such as depression and anxiety. So when we look at the neoliberal academy and how it can shape the experiences of students, it's not just the working conditions, but also the emotions Mm -hmm. um, and the perceptions of students in that workspace. Mm -hmm. So it has real consequences. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, thank you. This was such a great answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to ask, I guess, like two follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. 
one of them is about the censorship that you talked about. Mm-hmm. So like I'm interested in um, hearing your experience in that area, um, given the fact that you, in your own research, you are being critical, very much critical of the American higher education system. So do you feel that kind of um, pressure or censorship in any way in your own work? And also maybe you can um, say a few words about your own research uh, for our listeners. De- definitely. Um, I feel, I I don't feel the censorship as much, but I definitely feel the pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm experiencing, uh, I can't, for example, say out loud, I feel like I'm not being treated well in this program and I'm going to go write about it. I wouldn't do that because then mm-hmm. there would be consequences for it. Right? right. So I don't feel so much and I don't experience that in my program. Um, but I know a lot of students do. And I know a lot of students don't have the support of their advisor to say, okay, this is critical work. Um, and where it's okay to write about it and it's okay to publish about it. I am fortunate mm-hmm. to have an advisor that supports my critical work and that supports me wanting to disrupt those traditional ways of understanding research and of producing research. So the work that I do right now is I'm using a critical narrative methodology to understand the lived experiences of early college high school students and how they're navigating the college going process. Mm -hmm. But rather than interviewing 40 to 50 students, I really want to interview only a few students and really get to know their story and really get to know their, the, the, com- the, com- the complexity and tension that they have to navigate um, as they're going through the college-going process. And I'm able to do that because I have an advisor that supports me. But if I didn't, if I had an advisor that said, no, you need more students, then I couldn't use a critical narrative methodology to inform my research. Um, so having an advisor that supports you and that supports the critical work that you're doing is so important. Um, yeah, your research sounds fascinating, by the way. But I also think, you know, there's a way um, in which censorship is also built into the system itself in the sense that even if, you know, uh, at that moment you might be even encouraged or, you know, being supported to do this kind of research, when you look at future um, and when you, you know, think about um, the job market, you know, that is perhaps where you might feel the pressure of maybe not being so critical Mm -hmm. of the system in which you will try to get a job in. You, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I definitely agree with you on that. Um, there have been times where I won't discuss a certain thing or I won't pursue a certain line of research because I think, well, if I want to be on the tenure market, on the tenure track market, then I need to be careful with Mm-hmm. what I say, how I say it, who I say it to. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely. I don't feel mm-hmm. censored in my dissertation, but I could see myself feeling like I need to redirect my research mm-hmm. if that is something that the institution doesn't mm-hmm. value. If, if, there's, um, there, if there's no grants to yeah. fund my research, I may have to redirect my my uh what I want to study so sometimes it's not so much that somebody is doing the silencing Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. like a person silencing me, but Mm -hmm. it's the practices embedded in the academy Mm -hmm. that lead people to censor themselves or to censor their research. Or um, I talked about this earlier about journals Mm -hmm. and how editorial boards have so much power. They get to determine what gets published. Mm -hmm. They get to determine what is legitimate knowledge. And, and that is another way that people's research, critical research, can often get um, censored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and like one last question on um, that topic is about um, what you called disposable intellectuals. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I wanted to ask, um, how does adjuncting come into play, um, you know, in this framework? I can see, you know, some sort of connection over there, but can you talk maybe a little bit on that? Yes, um, adjunct actually plays a big, big role in this. Um, recently, we have seen a lot of universities and colleges shift from having a lot of tenure track positions to now having part-time positions, which mm-hmm. are um, almost the equivalent of adjunct positions. And this is a very strategic move. This is a neoliberal move to make sure um, that part-time individuals don't, don't have the same benefits as tenure track mm-hmm. uh, professors. So in having part-time positions, they don't have to pay the faculty as much. They don't have to provide the same um, health benefits um, or, or job security. Um, and their contracts are renewed every year. Mm-hmm. So if they don't want to renew them, they can say, we're going to find somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the workload is just as much, if not heavier, than faculty who are on tenure track. Some of, some of the uh, adjunct, adjunct professors are teaching five to six loads. And some of them teach in one community college, and then they teach at another university. Um, and they're not provided that safety net, that the same benefits. Um, and, it, and it goes back to neoliberalism and wanting to save money. And, and we have to question, like, well, where is this money going? Mm-hmm. Is it going back to students? Is it going back to the community for public mm-hmm. good? Or is it going to administrators mm-hmm. or top, top elite? Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we just like to go back a little bit to the neoliberal university and the experience of like graduate students particularly, uh, you describe the neoliberalism in such a nice way that we can see this as like, you know, a system, a structure, but at the same time, a process, right? That contains a lot of practices, a lot of behaviors, attitudes, but at the same time, I think the most impar- important part that we have to stri- stress is that this uh, is uh, enacted on human beings, on individuals, right? And also like we are graduate students, this is my eighth year. So it has been a long, a long process. And for most of the PhD students, right, it is a long process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you just like, no focus on the practices on how we experience it uh do you think that all the grad students experience neoliberal university in higher education in the same way or do we see some sort of like varieties in experiences Mm -hmm. that is impacted uh in relationship to race gender class um so yeah what would you say about this 
I think that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't think that neoliberalism impacts everybody the same way, but I do think that experiences vary by, by race, by gender, by ethnicity, and even uh, by public or private schools. I, I will even go further to say that neoliberalism would look different um, in a research one institution that focuses on research versus a teaching institution that focuses on coursework um, and, and uh, less on research and getting grants. So I think the experiences will vary definitely. Um, and that's because neoliberal practices and policies are rooted on that idea of individualism meaning that individuals are personally responsible and capable of achieving their goals. So this logic encourages competition and as a result, inequities are not seen as part of society's, uh, they're, they're seen as part of society's fault and not as part of the system's fault. So this is where neoliberal, neoliberal experiences would look different among race, gender, and ethnicity. So I actually have um, two examples, and one of them is very much relevant of what's happening right now during the COVID pandemic. Um, there have already been multiple reports on how women, and particularly um, those who are mothers or those who have multiple uh, caretaking roles in the academy, how they're experiencing COVID-19 different, differently. Mm. Um, and this is largely driven by neoliberal expectations of productivity and by Eurocentric social norms of what entails caretaking. And mothers in academia are struggling to keep up with their male counterparts. Um, there was just a report published in April, I believe, um, that found that journal submissions had increased for men since the academy had gone virtual. Mm -hmm. compared, uh, while for women, journal submissions had significantly decreased. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that there's this large gap that continues to exist between women and men in terms of household work um, and childcare. And then you add a pandemic plus mm -hmm. neoliberal practices and policies in the academy, and it becomes very, very problematic. Mm -hmm. And the way we experience it is very different. And the pressure to produce research and to bring in grants in conjunction with inflexible leave policies and discrimination um, and unpaid labor means that women will be, and, and particularly those um, that currently have a caretaking rule, will experience neoliberalism differently. Mm -hmm. um, another example are low income and working class students. Um, so for students to enter, graduate school, they have to take the graduate record examination test. This is a standardized test that's required for um, admission to US graduate programs. And to take this GRE, students must pay a fee, which creates an access barrier for students who cannot pay for the exam itself or who cannot pay um, for a tutor, for a GRE tutor. So even though research has found that the GRE is not a representative um, test for students' abilities, a lot of schools continue to use it. And that is privileging students who come from affluent backgrounds while placing hurdles for already minoritized groups such as low-income students and first-generation college students 
um, who, who already struggle in the pipeline. And, and again, it goes back to GRE being a standardized test, which is part of the neoliberal symptoms. Um, and recently, I know that a lot of programs have come out and said, we're not going to take the GRE score because of the pandemic, but it still remains unclear if this is a permanent move or if it's just a move during the, the, uh, the pandemic. So we'll, we'll have to see what that means. Mm -hmm. um, and then even if they do remove it, what does that mean for scholarships that are tied to GRE scores? Um, what does it mean for the college not to require it, but the university to require it? So, or for one university to require it and the other one not, and the student is applying for both. So the GRE continues to be a, um, a barrier for a lot of graduate students and particularly for low-income students and first-generation college goers. Mm -hmm. So it, it impacts the, uh, students differently, definitely. What are the possible ways of coping with the neoliberal system? Uh, do you have some ideas? I do. Um, I'm actually currently working on a piece where I, at first I was trying to reimagine the academy in these neoliberal times and trying to imagine it, try to imagine having no neo neoliberalism. And I found it really difficult to imagine a world, a world without neoliberalism. And what I came to terms with was that rather than trying to dismantle neoliberalism completely, that I was going to try to disrupt it as I went along my path. Um, because in many ways, whether I like it or not, I am complicit to neoliberalism practices. And um, so I shifted my goal of the paper that rather than trying to erase neoliberalism through steps, that um, I was going to find ways to work within and against and beyond the neoliberal academy. So I created this process and it's not a solution, um, but rather it's a guide to help myself and hopefully others um, think about ways of how to inter interrogate their way of being and doing research and teaching in academia. And this process requires a lot of self-reflection um, and a lot of work, and it's an ongoing process of becoming and resisting. And this process is not linear, meaning that I can take two steps forward and then I'm back to square one again if um, I, I fall into the neoliberal temptations. Um, but the first step I, I took was I acknowledged my complicity in the reproduction of neoliberal logics and practices. Um, I remember it was the second year of my PhD program. It was right before Thanksgiving and I had just gotten a rejection from a journal. And I just remember feeling so devastated. It was my first rejection uh, for publication. And then two weeks later, I got another rejection of a grant. And I just remember thinking like, how am I expected to enter into the market, the, the tenure track market? If I can't even publish a paper, I can't get any money. And then I started thinking all these like negative thoughts, right? And then I realized like, I am being complicit. I am the problem of, that I try to critique in neoliberalism. 
So I'm not, at this point, I'm not trying to fully escape neoliberalism, but I'm trying to understand it so that when I find myself thinking like that, like I am, like, I shouldn't be producing research to add it to my CV. And that was a big, like, red flag for me early on. And so when I realized, okay, well, I can't escape neoliberalism, I am complicit to some of the practices because I want to be successful in, in the market and I want to be successful as an academic or as an administrator. But can there be ways that I disrupted along, disrupted along the way, right? So the first one was just, okay, I understand that I, it's, I need to coexist with neoliberalism. Um, I want to find ways to disrupt it. The second step I took is I reclaimed uh, my time by slowing down. Um, and this isn't about slacking off, um, but rather living a quality life. Um, I, and I got this idea from Dr. Riyad Sashahan. He's a professor at Michigan State University. And he does amazing work on neoliberalism and what it means to exist um, in the academy with neoliberalism and how we are not only complicit, but how we can also disrupt it. And he actually wrote an article, it's uh, called Being Lazy and Slowing Down Towards Decolonizing <laughs> Time, Our Body and Pedagogy. Um, and for those, that are, for those that are listening and don't have access to that article, him and his wife actually have a blog that's called um, Being Lazy and Slowing Down. And they have amazing um, articles and, and resources and services. Mm -hmm. And I would highly encourage um, you all to check it out. It's really good. Um, but the whole idea is that I needed to slow down. I needed to take a moment and ask myself, why am I doing this? Why am I in this PhD program? And I remember working on Friday nights to 10 p.m. trying to get work done or reading. I was working on weekends. And by the end of my first year, I just felt this immense burnout. And I learned that my PhD is part of my life, but it should not be my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so the second step was really just slowing down, just taking some time to reevaluate the purpose of me being in a PhD program and what it was that I wanted to accomplish while still um, searching for that happiness and that joy um, in my life. And, and um, that allowed me to really reflect on my purpose and my goals for long term, not only as a PhD student, but as an individual, right? Trying to reclaim that human agency that neoliberalism is trying to take away from me, which takes me to my third step. Um, the third step is I reclaim some of that human agency that neoliberalism tries to take away and when it says that this is the knowledge that's produced um, and I try speaking back to it almost and saying well no I'm going to tell you what kind of knowledge I think is valued because this is what I believe um, and and I did this by asking myself a set of questions and one of the questions was what is my purpose for doing this research project or this grant or this fellowship right why to what ends, um, for whom, and with whom? If I'm doing this research project with participants, or am I doing this research project with a colleague or, or other scholars in academia, right? And at whose expense? And this question was the question that really had me thinking because 
it wasn't just at the expense of others, but it was at the expense of my happiness and my joy. And I knew that if I kept the behavior that I had my first year, I wasn't going to make it through. So at the expense of my happiness and joy was not an option. So I reevaluated a lot of that, right? And I took back that, that human agency that allowed me to make these decisions. And through these questions, I started to think about ways that I could not only critique neoliberalism, but also disrupted in my methods in research, um, in my role as a researcher, and through my actions as a scholar. And when I was writing my dissertation proposal for my chapter three, I really gave it some thought. I really asked myself, what is my role as a researcher when I'm trying to recreate the stories of students? Should I be telling their stories? Should I be uh, interrogating their stories? What should I do? And so I, my dissertation proposal really allowed me to put this into play. Um, and I began to try to actively reclaim my research agenda by recentering the individuals that I, I really wanted to learn about. Um, and that was Latinx, Latino, and Latina students. Um, and by assembling a we that is invested in one another. So I don't know if y'all have experienced this, but in academia, when I first started, there was this tendency to want to speak for others or want to give voice to the vulnerable, or want to give voice to those in need. And I always found that so problematic because I think as a researcher, my role is not to speak for others and it's not to give people a voice. They have their voice, they have their experiences, they have their stories. The problem is that sometimes there are structures and plays that silences or that ghost those stories. And so I feel that as my researcher, I am there, my job is to amplify those voices and to create space to put those stories into existence in academia. And so just these three steps really allowed me to shift my way of thinking about, uh, about research, about teaching in the neoliberal academy. And it didn't all happen at once. Like, my first step was, okay, I coexist with this. What do I do now? Um, and that was like a whole semester of feeling weird and feeling this tension of like, I'm a victim, but I'm also perpetuating neoliberal practices by my behavior. Um, and then the second step really didn't come in until later um, when I started to reclaim my, my time and, and started to slow down and really ask myself, why am I doing this? Um, and for whom and at what, whose expense. Um, and then this third step just happened this summer. Um, and, and even then, I'll say this, that I, I wouldn't be surprised if I fell back into some of the neoliberal practices and I started putting how many publications I have on my CV, right? And, I, and I'm starting to be okay with that because in order for myself to be successful in a neoliberal academy, I have to play the game just a little bit, but I also, in reclaiming my time and reclaiming my human agency, I know that I can also disrupt it in other ways and I can create space for not only myself, but other people that have critical knowledge systems that haven't been heard or that have been ghosted. Um, and that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. That sounds really wonderful. And um, 
a healthy and ethical way of being in academia, <laughs> which is just so, so difficult to achieve. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also thanks a lot for sharing this toolkit because I see this as a toolkit <laughs> that all of us should start, you know, using. Yeah. 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 I'm very mm-hmm. inspired yes. right now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank- it takes, it takes a lot. And some, there's times where I fall right back into neoliberal Mm-hmm. ways of thinking and practice and and like i said this is an ongoing uh self-reflection process right. and and it takes it's every day where i have to think about yeah. okay what am i doing yeah. mm-hmm. okay thank you so much this was great thank you very much Yeah. thank you both i i really enjoyed this thank you both for um giving me the opportunity to talk about neoliberalism and my work and my thoughts um i i I just, this was really fun to do. (laughs) Thank you. We were so happy to have you. And for our listeners, if you're interested, you can follow DNA um, on Twitter. And her Twitter handle is at DNARFLAEL. So thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Just As It Sounds. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any questions or ideas for the show, please email us at contactjustasitsounds at gmail.com.